From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. After a challenging stretch that saw them drop consecutive games in heartbreaking fashion, the men's basketball squad chomped back this week with wins against Georgia and Texas A&M to get to 500 in conference play. On this week's show, we'll put a highlight on hoops, football, gymnastics, and more with FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter. Then, Mike White's newest assistant coach, Al Pinkin, shares his circuitous path to Gainesville and how he balances having a large family with the rigors of college coaching. But first, one of the joys of following a young team is the opportunity to see them learn from their mistakes and grow right before your eyes. That's certainly been the case with this impactful freshman class, but as Chris told us to open our roundtable, it's largely been made possible by career-defining performances from a senior. Well, more than anything, you saw and you've seen it probably in the last maybe even two weeks, or at least the elements of it that have really picked up the last two weeks, is the most aggressive version of Kayvon Allen since he got here on campus. I don't even think you can, you can argue the point right now. He's uh, he's averaging now almost 18 points a game in Southeastern Conference play. He stepped up and took it upon himself to take some very uh, important shots in the Georgia game uh, Saturday when the um, Florida had blown what was a 10-point lead at the half. Georgia had come out red hot and it hit a bunch of threes and had taken the lead. Uh, Florida had fought back. Uh, Kayvon hit some really, really big shots. And in a, in a team huddle toward the end of the half, when Florida's trying to stave off uh, this Georgia rally on the road, Mike White designed a play for him. He goes, Kayvon, because a couple nights earlier at Mississippi State, he, he had a couple uh, uh, isolation situations where he got rid of the ball. And he heard about that for a few days. He said, we give you the ball here. Are you going to? Are you going to take a shot? And Kayvon gave him like a blank stare. He goes, what play do you want, Kayvon? Are you going to shoot the ball? And he said, it, he suggested a play. He goes, we ran that the other night. He goes, okay, run this. And damn if they didn't run that, and he bombed a three in from the corner. They ran the same play for him the next time down on the other side where he went to the other wing, did a head fake and drove the lane and made a nice little left-handed float or well. I don't know what happened, but, I mean, that was a 13-point game. He didn't shoot great in that game, but he had a little bounce to him after the game where he was kind of – he was he was happy. And it must have carried over into this A&M game because nothing went right for Florida uh, in the first half, Adam. Their defense was a, an atrocity. Um, Florida's defense came in, I believe, ranked seventh nationally in efficiency. Uh, they faced an A&M, which was, I think, 340th in three-point efficiency. Wow. A&M was 7-11 in the first half. They had a guy who was hitting 25% from three in the S- in SEC play. He was five for five from three in the first half. So you had to wonder if Florida's defense wasn't going to be that bad that, the, uh, the rest of the game. And certainly A&M's uh, shooting wasn't going to be that good the rest of the game. But Kayvon Allen was great in the first half. I think he had 14 points. Then he went off for, the, for his 17 in the second half. He was four for four from three. And, of course, got some help from a very young teammate. But uh, uh, just a, a fabulous night from Kayvon and a really, really good come from behind win by the Gators. They hadn't come from double digits this season uh, to win a game. Uh, it was the first time since Kenny Boyton and Irving Walker back in 2000, I believe 10 Florida had two players with at least six threes in a game. 
So between Kayvon Allen with his eight threes and freshman Noah Locke, uh, who is uh, not performing like a freshman, obviously, 27 points, he had seven threes. I think he was seven to 12 from deep. Uh, it was a barrage of long balls. Is that sustainable? I don't know, but they don't have a whole lot of options right now, given the situation of the of their personnel and what they have rotation-wise. Yeah, you know, just looking at their stats, like Chris just said, that's 46% of their shots this season have been three-pointers, which, you know, as someone's not around the team as much as Chris, I mean, that's that's amazing to me. But that's also just that's a part of the game and a bigger picture, isn't it, Chris? Because I see it in the NBA all the time. You hear all the time, why don't Florida, why don't Florida have a center? Well, who does have a center? Uh, I mean, they're not growing on trees, man. And and it's becoming more of a positionless game, obviously, with the skill set being who can who can shoot three pointers and spread the floor for guys to make plays. Now, having said that, yeah, you need some element of an inside game. But guess what? Florida is down three guys on scholarship who would normally be playing in the post going in the season. They thought they'd be getting something from from Keystone from uh, Chase Johnson, who has since transferred to Dayton, and from Gorjak, who's not going to play this season. He's going to medical redshirt. So what are the options? You're going to throw the ball into Kabarius Hayes and make him pretend he's LaMarcus Aldridge? It's, it, I mean, what does Florida do best right now? Well, when Kayvon Allen is confident and go, and Noah Locke is confident, and right now Noah, there's nobody in the country, I don't think, more confident in a shot than Noah Locke right now, that's what it's going to take. And there were a few opportunities for Florida to score inside. Andrew Nemar made a great penetration move, kicked the ball to a cut in Dante Bassa, which should have been a dunk or layup, fumbles the ball out of bounds. Kicked the ball into Kavarius Hayes, or it might have been an offense rebound. I'm not sure. He has the ball in the block. He's being trapped. He tries to throw it to a pass. It's a pick six that goes the other way at a time when I think the Gators were up by seven points, so now it's a five-point game. So they are limited to what they can do when the ball goes inside. So what else do you do? You try to hit three-pointers. There are some sitting behind me yesterday because I sit right down on the floor just say get the ball inside get the ball inside well what are you going to do with it when it does go inside and who are you going to give it to that's going to make a play inside you do post guys need touches to to make things happen yeah um Keontae Johnson is a guy he got his second a career start Florida starting three freshmen now because Keontae Johnson started the last two games both wins by the way he had he had nine rebounds career high he had five on the offensive glass but he's not a guy who's going to get the ball and make something happen inside. He's a he's an athlete, uh, jump over guys, get some tips, give you a chance at some second chance opportunities. But he did have a big offensive rebound and a stick back with a minute left in the game after uh, Texas A&M had cut the lead to five, so make it a seven point cushion. You know, kind of iced it at that time. So they're playing three freshmen, about a hundred minutes out of the two hundred possible minutes available. Uh, so this might have to be who this team is. is uh, again, you're not going to be hot like that all the time. You're not going to shoot 68% in the second half from three-point range. Excuse me, it was better than that. It was 11 of 15. Mm. Um, I think it was 70, 73%. That's not going to happen. But uh, as long as you have Kayvon Allen confident and as long as you have Noah Locke confident and Andrew Nemhard had a career-high 12 assists in the game, um, they're doing what they're being asked to do right now. And I think they're doing about what they can do right now, given the situation with Jalen Hudson being a shadow of the player he was last year, uh, given the, the, the dearth of post guys and, you know, losing Keystone to a season ending injury just a couple of days ago. Yeah. And in terms of Noah Locke, who you talked about the way he's playing right now, 
Uh, what, what makes him special? I mean, where does that come from, that confidence? Because he's got a maturity about him that's pretty clear. We talked to him a few weeks ago, and you could tell that he's got a little bit of a, a different mindset than a lot of freshmen. Uh, is, is this more than they expected to get from Noah Locke at this stage? It's funny, because one of the quotes he gave to me when it's early in the season there were some frustrating things going on with the team, and he was saying, we're not doing what the coach is telling us to do. He goes, and it's not hard to do that. <laughs> That's not something a freshman would normally say, but guess what? His dad is a basketball coach. His mom is a basketball coach. His brother played uh, college basketball. Uh, his sister, I think, is the all-time leading scorer at their high school. Um, his brother, he, he broke his brother's uh, uh, record for points at their high school. This is a, t- a guy who scored well, both of them scored well over 2,000 points in their high school career. So Noah Locke knows how to play basketball. He knows what it takes to be successful. He knows... Um, the discipline and the work ethic needed to be a great player. But, I, you know, I'll, I'll be the first to say that. That performance he put on against A&M was not something I was expecting to see. The guy, his career high going in that game was 18 points. But to roll out 27 in a game like that and the big shots he took, at one point he hit three straight threes for the Gators when they were down, and, and that really started their comeback. The confidence with which he pulls up, the way he seeks space in transition – and goes to the exact place he needs to be, the exact place the coaches tell guys to go uh, when the floor is scrambling in a transition opportunity. Not every guy does that, and not, and that's why guys don't play. But now, now let's flip it back to the other side. One of the most effective defenses Florida has rolled out all season has been their one-two-two press, which kind of – he's at the top of the thing. And so he's setting the tone with it being the pest at the top of the thing. Now, once they roll into – and get past the the hash mark, it, it goes into a man-to-man. But he's the one who sets the tone of that possession by being at the top of that thing. Uh, normally, you'd like to have maybe a, a long kind of wing at the top of that thing. But that, they like Noah Locke out there. And maybe it's because he, he's willing to sprint to spots and transition and find places where he can set his feet and take that shot. But it's a quick trigger that he has. It's obviously something he's made a – short career out of, uh, uh, you know, whether it's talking high school and, you know, whatever it is, uh, 17 games into his college season. But uh, I'm looking at his conference stats here, 15.3 points a game. He's shooting uh, uh, 42% from the floor and 40% from three. Uh, he, he leads the team. Uh, he was leading. He leads the team overall in, in, in three-point makes this season. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kayvon Allen, by the way, is now at uh, 50 four percent from three-point line in conference play that'll win you some games but uh these two guys together 58 points in that game uh uh, from now on you know scouting reports are going to put big x's on these guys how are they going to respond to having guys up in their jerseys they're going to play a lot better teams coming down the pike here some ranked opponents uh, uh going on the road this saturday in the in the big 12 sec challenge to play a, a TCU team that started the season ranked, got up to number 18. Um, uh, they got to play, obviously, Kentucky twice. Got to play LSU twice. They got to play Alabama. Uh, they got to play uh, Auburn on the road. Um, so uh, some chances for some big wins down the line that they're going to have to make if they want to reach their goal of reaching the NCAA tournament for a third time in a row. Just knowing now that you can fall down by 13, there's a threat to come back because we know this team can shoot the ball. If it can maintain its confidence, then perhaps they could, this could be a, a dangerous team to face down the line. Um, but it's not going to change with regards to being a one-dimensional team. They're going to have to 
rely on that three-point shot to be successful. And just to, to put a wrap on our basketball discussion, you mentioned the three freshmen on the floor. Uh, how rare is that if we look at it uh, historically? Yeah, uh, I wrote a story about it going in the game when Florida started, Keontae Johnson at Georgia. It was the first time in 20 years that three freshmen had started for the Gators. Wow. Uh, you go back to 1999, uh, Billy Donovan's uh, third team, his first NCAA tournament team. Uh, they started uh, four freshmen in the first game of the season that year. Mike Miller, Teddy Dupay, Udonis Haslam, and Ladarius Halton. Um, they maintained that rotation for the first three games. Mike, Mike Miller got hurt. Um, they were 11-1 and one and went to Kentucky and just got destroyed by 35. Mm. And uh, at the time, we're averaging 20.6 turnovers a game. Billy Don says, I've had enough. Don't want to watch this anymore. I'm going to mix my freshmen around. He brought in Kenyon Weeks, uh, played more Greg Stoll, more Eddie Shannon. He had options on that team as far as inside out um so to to have three obviously is is rare not if you're kentucky duke or kansas north carolina because we're not operating we're not talking about um three mcdonald's all americans mm -hmm. um florida had a nice recruiting class this season and is certainly uh reaping some benefits from that but uh there, i have to say though and mike white i'm just echoing what mike white has said noah Locke and andrew nemhart from the time they've been here have been the mo two of the most mature players on the team in terms of doing what they're supposed to do, both during practice, off the floor, and during games. Uh, Keontae Johnson, been on him all the time about playing harder. Uh, he takes possessions off. He'll, he'll give them some, you know, looks at them sideways sometimes when they go after him a little bit. Well, they gave him a chance, and he's responded to that. It's, uh, Scott and I were talking uh, after the game uh, the other night, and, and Scott thinks Noah Locke may be the best freshman since Bradley Beal uh, for this team. And I don't think there's any doubt about that right now. He's certainly performing like that. You know, Kayvon Allen obviously was an all-freshman player or what have you, but uh, this guy is, is, a, is a special player who's just beginning to tap into uh, this potential for what he can bring to this program. Yeah, the comparison to Bradley Beal is is high praise for sure. And uh, if we can pivot off that, uh, there's a lot of high praise coming in for the latest member of the Gator football coaching staff. And this was not a spot, Scott, that, that Dan Mullen expected to fill. But last week, uh, since the last time we spoke, as a matter of fact, all this happened, Charlton Warren shockingly leaves to take the same position as DB's coach at Georgia. And then people are wondering, oh, what does this mean for the Gators? And the DBU stuff goes on. Is you know, is Florida losing that mantra? And then they go and they bring back Torian Gray, who previously led DBU, maybe when it was at its best. So it seems like everyone is, is really excited that Torian Gray has come back to Gainesville. Yeah, including Torian Gray. I had a chance to catch up with him, and uh, it was weird seeing him back in the it's weird for him how ha how fast this all happened because, as you mentioned, Adam, it was a surprise uh, when Warren left to go to Georgia. You know, Georgia hyped it up over the weekend on a big recruiting weekend, and, of course, Gator fans instantly wondered what that meant for Florida. Well, it meant Torian Gray is, is back, and he said basically a couple of the guys he recruited here, uh, Marco Wilson and C.J. Henderson, texted him uh, after the news broke about Carlton Warren and, you know, wow, Florida, what about going back there? And, uh, that's how it all started. He flew down here Sunday night, met with Dan Mullen Monday morning, had never met Dan Mullen in person. His connection, obviously, he coached uh, and played under Todd Grantham back at Virginia Tech in the day. Hmm. And uh, 
That got him in the door. By Monday night, they'd reached a deal. He flew back home up to the D.C. area. He hit the road recruiting on Wednesday. And uh, so, obviously, a whirlwind for Torian Gray. Uh, I thought just from talking to him, you, you, there'll be a story up on FortiGators.com this week. People want more. But the one thing, I, I, basically, you want to know why. I mean, why are you sitting back here in this chair mm-hmm. in this same building that you were here? And he said when he came here, he never expected to be here just for a year. I mean, his his wife's family even moved to Gainesville because they wanted to be closer to their kids. But then the offer from the Redskins came along, and he said it was always something that he, he wanted maybe to test himself in the NFL coaching in his own position group. It gave him that opportunity. And, of course, the family connections are still there. His, his wife's family still lives here in Gainesville. They're happy. He's from Lakeland, so he gets the family part of it back and, just my initial take just from talking to him, I mean, he was pretty happy to be back. And uh, it was an opportunity that he certainly wasn't on his radar as of Saturday morning. But by Saturday night and the early Sunday morning when uh, those players reached out, he started really thinking about it, came down. And as they say, the rest is history. That's that's the coaching carousel for you in 2019, Adam. Yeah. It's a very transient career to begin with, and now you see even more of that now, guys jumping around. And there's coming up after people hear from you guys, they'll hear from Al Pinkins, who's the new assistant basketball coach, and his story is also insane of the number of jumps, the number of moves, and the toll that that takes on a family. So I encourage people to stay tuned to listen to that. Uh, I want to turn our attention quickly here to gymnastics, Scott. We talked to Jenny Rowland last week, and we spoke about it the week before that. Uh, but they went to LSU this past weekend, and they did something that not a lot of teams have done there in a long time, which is win in kind of a historic fashion. One of the biggest wins, I think, is in the Gators' regular season history. Uh, it's very difficult to win at LSU. And, and you look at the way that, that meet unfolded, they trailed narrowly going into the, the final rotation. And and I'll be honest with you, you don't expect uh, judging in the SEC at home. It, it doesn't very often turn against the home team. And LSU certainly benefits uh, from it normally in Baton Rouge, but the Gators uh, had a great close on beam, which is if you follow college gymnastics or gymnastics in general, you know the beam is uh, perhaps the most difficult uh, rotation to score high on uh, and the Gators closed the meet with you know you got to think about how that unfolded LSU is on floor the crowd's excited that's the event that gets people on their feet and yet the beam is the one that probably takes the most concentration and uh, Rachel Gowie performed a, a tremendous uh, routine on the beam scored high and in the end the Gators as a as a unit all, uh, all their scores came through, and it gave them a big win. And, uh, you know, you look at their early season, you know, with two SEC wins, and a lot of people expect Florida and LSU to, to be among the four, five, six teams at the end. And to beat LSU on the road in that environment in the second meet of the season, you know, pretty, it bodes well uh, for Florida to back home uh, this week. Again, there's a lot of season left, but uh, Jenny Rowland and her team were pretty excited about what transpired out in Baton Rouge. Yeah, they snapped LSU's six-year home unbeaten streak. So uh, that'll transition nicely into our PAT, which is about the Saints game, which was also, I believe, the first home playoff loss they've had 
under the Sean Payton and Drew Brees regime. And it's been highly controversial because of a pass interference call that was, I would say, about as blatant as any pass interference I've ever seen that somehow was not called, really changed the complexion at the end of the game, and has a lot of people crowing about the way that the rules are set up and the inability to review penalties and a lot of other things that sort of held the Saints back in that game. Now, as a Falcons fan, it gave me great joy to see the Saints lose, but I certainly understand the argument that something needs to be done to be able to correct egregiously bad calls when everything is on the line. And certainly we've seen Major League Baseball do that in the last couple of years. I'm curious for the two of you guys, uh, how do you think this can be addressed? What should the NFL do to try and prevent something like this from happening in the future? Well, I mean, it's a great question. It's one that's been talked about all week on Sports Talk Radio, ESPN. I don't know if there's a perfect way because that's not a reviewable play under the current rules. Now, you would like to think that they could adjust on the fly for such an egregious call because we've all seen bad calls go against our favorite teams or just in games like that that, quite frankly, I didn't have any particular rooting interest. Uh, but it was entertaining to see the social media reaction uh, of, of that call and a uh, couple in the, uh, the Patriots-Chiefs game. As, as someone who didn't really have, like I said, any rooting interest, I enjoyed the drama. and It was it was humorous to me, but I'm sure uh, Sean Payton and Drew Brees and those folks in New Orleans, I mean, it's ruined a lot of people's weeks down there. <laughs> Bottom line is, if pass interference is a call that suddenly is invoked into the, the replay uh, review rules in NFL, I mean, the games could start lasting six or eight hours, right? Because there's a lot of plays and passing that it can go either way, those pass interference calls. So if you start reviewing every one, I mean, that's not good for anybody. I do think that the drama that played out on Sunday in both games, I think it's good for the NFL. It's not good for New Orleans. Maybe it's not good for Kansas City, but I think it's good for the NFL. I think it's good for the Super Bowl. I think it's good for the two-week hype machine leading up to the Super Bowl. So... I'm on the side of, you know, that's the way sports are. There's always controversy. I think it needs it once in a while. And I'm sorry, New Orleans fans. That's just the way I feel. I'm not sure how you can, if you can turn judgment calls over to the league office, when you open that door, where do you, where do you close it? Where does it stop? I mean, as soon as you start sending defensive pass interference uh, calls to New York to be reviewed. What about offensive pass interference? What about uh, holding calls? There has to be a line, like Scott said. I mean, if the way that Kansas City game, we'd still be watching the damn thing. Um, <laughs> there, were, I mean, there were so many bad calls in that one, and or no calls or what have you. Um, this has been talked about a long time. It's, I remember when I covered the Bucks back in the eighties. Uh, the, there was some ridiculous holding penalty or something late in a game where um, the Bucks, um got screwed in this game early in the, early in the season and the uh, and the, the referee who made the call it was at, it was at Lambeau Field and the referee that made the call was from Sheboygan Wisconsin he was a foot doctor how about making these guys like full-time um, referees full-time mm -hmm. officials a lot of them have their two jobs some of them are lawyers uh, have other jobs and you know maybe that's a way to go where that's all they do then maybe you can work some kind of or find a happy medium or something when you go to a when you bring the league office in for a controversial call or whatever, but I don't think you can go to pass interference or any more than you could go to uh, 
some other things that would the so-called judgment calls and leave that to the sidelines. Um, you know, I, I'm sure there'll be a groundswell for that. And I know how league meetings go. I've been to a bunch of them. Uh, they will meet and they will talk ad nauseum about it. I just don't think ultimately they're going to pull the trigger on something like that. Just like I don't think they're going to ultimately pull the trigger on full-time officials because that's something that coaches have been calling for for a long, long time. If you went back in history and, and replay existed, what call sticks out in your all's mind that would be a, a history would be different if replay had been in place today? I can think easily that the 2002 national championship, Ohio State and Miami, when it was the phantom pass interference call, this is the opposite. When there was pass interference called where there really wasn't any, if that's reviewed, then you probably have a different national champion because that was the final play. So yeah. I, I think there's tons of examples of where it would be the difference maker. <laughs> there are tons. One that came to mind for me was the, what, Florida game at Tennessee. And what what year was that? Was it uh, Jabbar Gaffney catch? Mm-hmm. 2000. Jesse Palmer yeah. pass, yep. Which, mm-hmm. you know, obviously helped the Gators. <laughs> so New Orleans fans, uh, again, sorry, but, you know, that's, that's Tennessee fans right there with you still from, what, 20 years ago almost. Yeah. I think the best thing to do, and this is probably what's going to happen, is you, you can make a judgment penalty call one of your challenges that you can use. If it's that egregious, you can't start challenging every play because you still have the limited number of challenges. But if you see something, and everyone in the stadium can clearly see it in a replay, and the fact is that a guy just missed it because there's so much going on and there's so many different things they're having to watch for, there's no reason why that shouldn't be able to be looked at and corrected in the same way that a fumble that isn't seen correctly can can be fixed. I don't see why you wouldn't do that. You're not going to go ahead and give them eight challenges. You're not going to lengthen the game that much. You just change the scope of what a reviewable play is and it's also not a whistle play where you know it was blown dead and you can't say it would continue it's it's pretty black or white if there's a penalty the play continues you look at it afterwards it's either there or it's not so we'll see in time if anything changes what we know for sure is that you guys have a bunch of content coming out this week so make sure to follow chris as he heads out to is that fort worth texas is that where tc is fort worth texas fort worth texas that's where that's where chris will be for the big 12 sec challenge see if the gators can keep up that momentum and scott's got a lot of stuff coming out about these early enrollees and of course you mentioned it scott the tory and gray story as well so make sure to check out floridagators.com follow these guys on twitter at gators scott at gators chris for everything gentlemen thank you so much we'll talk to you next week see adam i think adam Every coach has their own story of how they cut their teeth and got into the business, but few have done it in the globe-trotting manner that Al Pinkins has. As the elder statesman in his first year on Mike White's staff, Pinkins has brought experience and a significant presence to coaching the post players. We spoke to Coach Pinkins about his work with the bigs and their areas for improvement, but began by tracing his roots back to the start of his story. I was born and raised and grew up in Camilla, Georgia, about a three-hour drive from here, probably about 45 minutes north of Tallahassee, Florida. My mom uh, works several jobs. Uh, right now, she's she's working at a, a hunting lodge. She's a cook at a hunting lodge at Pino's Plantation. Uh, and my dad worked on a military base up in Albany, Georgia for most of his career. He's retired now. My immediate family... Uh, my wife and I, we met at NC State. Uh, we've been married since 2004. Three boys, 12, uh, 9, and 7. Two elementary and one in middle school. They're all athletic. 
uh, baseball and basketball. No, mm. no football so far. Mom doesn't like that. So <laughs> they're, they're, they're big into baseball and basketball right now. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because I know that growing up, you were not only a strong basketball player, but also a football player. So I'm curious, what role did sports play in your life growing up? And when did you really decide to, to focus in on basketball? State of Georgia, I think, is huge football state. So uh, I started actually started playing football uh, when I was about five. Basketball as well started at about age five. So my love for basketball, baseball, and football started at, at the age of about five. Uh, decided to play all three up until about, I want to say, my 11th grade year. I stopped playing baseball but continued to play basketball and football. You know, just trying to decide where I wanted to go to college. Honestly, I couldn't figure out which one I wanted to play more than the other. And at the end of my high school career during recruitment, it was hard. So I decided to go to a place where I could play both and and I signed with Auburn. They would let me figure it out and, and decide if I wanted to play both or not. And they gave me the option to do that until I could figure it out. So I signed with those guys uh, out of high school. Well, then from that point, I know your, your college career was quite the journey. So can you sort of take us through that path and how you ultimately ended up at NC State? Okay. So, so, so like I said, I signed with Auburn because they were going to let me do both. Had a really good relationship with Coach Pat Dye and his football staff. Uh, Sullivan was a quarterback coach. Had a great relationship with him, Pat Sullivan. Uh, and then Tommy Joe Eagles was the head basketball coach. Had a really good relationship with him and an assistant coach, Ralph Rafford. Uh, so both of those staffs got together and they did a really good job of, of giving me the path to where I could go and play both. But unfortunately, I, I never got to play there because both of the staffs uh, got fired the same year. Wow before I ever got a chance to play there. Hmm. So I think me, quite a few other guys sat around for about two or three weeks without coaches, without basketball coaches. Uh, obviously me trying to play football, didn't have a football coach as well. So I decided to transfer and it was so late. This was, uh, I want to say it was close to October because Auburn then was on the quarter system and school hadn't started yet. So it was it was late September, I think, early October. So I decided to transfer to Chipola Junior College and got a chance to sit that spring and play. And when I left Chipola, I signed with NC State. You know, my recruitment was really good. I had a, quite a few options, Mississippi State, West Virginia, Florida State. And I, I took a visit to NC State, Mississippi State, and uh, actually Utah State because my coach that coached me, uh, Kermit Davis, Got the assistant job at Utah State, and I went out there on a visit with him as well and ended up signing at NC State. I uh, had a, a guy that I played high school ball with and AAU ball with there. So it was Comfort, big-time basketball school. They were in need of some help. They had been down for a couple of years. So so I signed with those guys and, and had a decent career there. And, and after that, you know, Ended up going overseas, not quite enough, quite good enough to play in the NBA. Ended up going overseas and having a pretty good career over in China, Spain, and a little small country. Uh, some people pronounce it Qatar or Qatar. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you about that too, because I know when guys go overseas, it, it can be a real culture shock in a lot of ways. I'm curious from those places you got to spend time in, uh, how did that change you? How did that affect you being in these far off locales, not knowing a lot of people, and obviously being very new to the culture there? 
you know, I, I think it really helped me grow up, you know, being from a rural area uh, and obviously going to play at NC State and, and kind of bouncing around a little bit. I, I went overseas not knowing, which most guys don't know how hard it is to communicate, mm-hmm. uh, to deal with your money, to deal with the social life, uh, to be coached by guys that, that don't speak really good English. I, I think it helped me grow up uh, as a young man. I was the only American. We had two. We, you could have two foreigners on the team that I played on, but you could only have one American. So it was hmm. it was me and a guy from Sudan who, thank God, he spoke English. So it was really two English speaking guys on my team. The rest of the guys spoke Spanish. Wow. No English. But I had a really good translator at the time. My agent was my translator. <laughs> uh, I signed with a Spanish. Yeah, I signed with a, a guy that was. He's a Spanish guy, but he had lived over here in Chicago back and forth for then 15 years. So he was really fluent English, obviously Spanish. And so that being my first job, he really helped me with the, with the transition. Do you have any moments you can remember where you're, there was a particular challenge to this clash of cultures or where the language barrier caused something funny to happen? Uh, yeah, my first couple of games over there, trying to understand what coaches wanted me to do, was a, <laughs> you know, was the biggest issue because they would throw me the ball and just space the floor and, and they wanted me to go make a play. Well, you know, teams are really good. So they were kind of loaded and I couldn't, you know, it was mm-hmm. guys in the gaps everywhere. And every time I would drive it, they would really just come double team me. So I would have to give it up, give it up, give it up. So my first couple of games, I didn't score the ball as much. And, and I don't think they were happy. And <laughs> I wasn't very happy either. So me, my agent and the coaching staff, we kind of got together and really I, I kind of developed the offense. You know, I, I, I got them to where we could move the ball about four or five or six times and then give it to me. And I just drove it and laid it in a basket. And it was, you know, it was funny because we <laughs> talked throughout the year. They wanted to make one pass to me and just, I guess they thought I was LeBron James. Right. One, I could go make a play. But <laughs> but that was, that was the, probably the first issue with the language barrier uh, as far as, you know, basketball. So I guess in some ways that was your, your first foray into coaching. At what point did that become something you wanted to pursue? When and how did that coaching bug bite you? I knew after the ball start stopped bouncing, I, I wanted to coach. I didn't know how long I would play. Uh, I had a couple of knee injuries throughout the course of, of college. You know, I got healthy and bounced back, but I knew, like like some other guys or some other players, they think they can play forever. I knew it would end at some point. So what I did, Adam, is I, okay, I signed for a coach at Auburn, which is one, played for, what, Kermit at uh, Chipola, mm-hmm. uh, played for Les Robinson and Herb Sendek at NC State. So probably what, four, four or five different coaches that I stayed in contact with when I graduated from college. So I, you know, and I let all of those guys know like, Hey, I want to coach, you know, when I'm done playing basketball, I want to coach. So I did a really good job of staying in touch with those guys, bouncing into some of their camps during the summer uh, when I was back from overseas. So what I'm doing now, it was kind of my plan. And that started with your work at Middle Tennessee State. That was your first coaching job, I believe. So how did you ultimately get your foot in the door and and start this journey that that you're on now? You know, the the year after I played over Spain and where else did I go? Over in Qatar, I thought my body, I thought my knees were starting to give. So I started putting feelers out 
Uh, I started applying for every grad position that came open at every school that had one. And, and, and luckily, I played for Kermit Davis, and he was a head coach at Middle Tennessee. In his second year, he had a, a grad assistant uh, get a full-time job at the University of Denver, and, and he called me and, and gave me about, I don't know, two or three days to take the job and jump on the road. So, he, you know, we had a long conversation. He knew I wanted to coach. Uh, I called my agent, told him I was not going to go back to China, that I was going to, you know, pursue coaching. And in about a three day span, I packed my car up and drove to Murfreesboro, Tennessee in about two or three days with about two or three days notice. That's how my coaching career started, because I knew I'd been trying for like two years applying for every uh, I'm I'm serious, like every grab position (laughs) that I could find on the Internet, I would apply for it and have guys. Those guys call the coaches as my reference, and they were so hard. It was so hard to get one. I knew I had to take it, even though even though it was only like two, three days notice. So I packed my car up, whatever I could put in it, and and really didn't. I didn't even have a place to stay. So I drove to Murfreesboro, uh, slept in the locker room for a couple of days. Wow. Uh, found an apartment after about four or five days, and got started. And you were at Middle Tennessee for a while. So you had eight years. I'm assuming you were able to develop a, a real philosophy at that point and figure out what kind of coach you wanted to be. What did you ultimately land on as far as that philosophy? And, and who were some of the people you feel like shaped that the most? I think Kermit Davis is probably, I shouldn't say probably, I think he's the most underrated coach, I think, in college basketball for, for what he's done at Middle Tennessee and what he's doing at Ole Miss. So me starting my career for him, I played for him and working for him for eight years. So that that was my base. You know, Mm -hmm. he let me coach the bigs and the perimeter. Uh, I got to scout uh, at an early, early young age, really detailed guy. So I I just think me working for him for eight years, it gave me a really, really good foundation. And I honestly think that's why I've been able to move around and work for some other really good guys because Kermit's reputation as a coach is is well known throughout the coaching uh, fraternity. And what I learned from him, I continued to take on to other different places. And I was fortunate enough to work for a guy like Kermit to, to be able to get my base and my foundation to work. You get really good in all the areas. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's not it's not one thing you do as an assistant coach. It's the recruiting, uh, it's the scouting of opponents, uh, it's the on the floor development, uh, it's the relationship with the players, relationship with the community, uh, and I think Kermit checked all those boxes uh, as a young coach. And me working for him, you know, I took it all with me throughout my stops. Well, I know those stops continued on to a, a little tour of the SEC, Ole Miss, Tennessee, LSU, and then most recently Texas Tech, which is where you were before you came to Florida. So I'm kind of curious how that all came together. What type of relationship did you have with Mike White? And what do you remember about getting that first call from him about getting into the spot that you are now? You know, Mike, Mike and I were together on the staff at Ole Miss, uh, I, I want to say not not very long, maybe a week or maybe two uh, and Mike got the, the head coach, head coaching job at Louisiana Tech. Uh, but I had known Mike for years because when I was at Middle Tennessee, I recruited the state of Mississippi while he was at Ole Miss uh, working for Andy Kennedy. So we, so Mike and I, we sat in a lot of gyms. Uh, we recruited some of the same guys. Uh, I can remember calling Mike or texting Mike and other guys on the Ole Miss staff 
you know, just trying to ask them which guys they were serious about because, you know, we're recruiting some of the same guys. And if, you know, they wouldn't go on them, we were, you know, turn the recruiting up at Middle Tennessee. It's just kind of how recruiting works. You know, you, you're at that lower level. You call a lot of the power five guys to kind of see who they're really, mm-hmm. really trying to get and who they may not. And, you know, you're trying to get those guys because they're close, you know, we're, we're recruiting. So had always had a great relationship with him throughout recruiting, uh, scouting as well. Uh, we actually scrimmaged Ole Miss when I was at Middle Tennessee and Mike was the assistant there. So, so great relationship. I've always respected him as an assistant coach and as a head coach. Uh, so proud for him when he got the Louisiana Tech job. I was disappointed we didn't get a chance to work together longer because I was looking forward to it. But, but like I told him, I was proud, you know, proud of him when he got the job. And, and part of that, you know, brought me here because he's done such a good job here as well as Louisiana Tech in developing culture and um, getting these guys to understand what it takes to win and, and what this place uh, is all about here at the University of Florida. You know, people don't think about the, the personal part of this. I know that's a, a really big part for you and your family because you've got a big family. What goes through that process for you with your wife and your kids about, hey, uh, I think it's it's time for us to make this move, and, and here's why we need to do it. You know, every time it's I've had a chance to change jobs or that I've been offered jobs, I you know, first thing I do is I, I sit everybody down, and it's kind of like recruiting. You know, you go through the <laughs> positive, you go through the negatives. Right. And, you know, with kids, and as they get older, they become more opinionated. My 12-year-old is, you know, when we left LSU to go to Texas Tech, you know, he he said, man, where where is Texas Tech? Why would you go to Texas Tech? So normally when we sit down, I have details on either why I'm going to take the job or why I want to take the jobs that I can explain to the kids and my wife. And it's clear to whether or not I need to take the job or, or not take the job. So that's that's how I've gone about it here the last couple of moves couple final things for you. I know that one of the things you came in and did immediately was start working with the big guys. Where have you seen the most growth and in what areas do you feel like they have the most work to do? You know, when I took the job, I, I watched all of their makes and misses uh, from each guy. And, and obviously each guy's different. Dante's a little different uh, than Kavarius. Uh, Keith Stone's a little bit different than those two guys. He was unfortunately, he's, uh, you know, he's out for the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Isaiah Stokes. It is different than the other three guys. So coaching bigs, I try to coach guys to their strength on what they do well and then try to help them, you know, do some things that they don't do so well. Uh, like with Kavarius, our main focus with him was was trying to develop, you know, being able to make layups through contact, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he understood that. And he came to me right away and we talked about it. I told him I thought it was focused. I thought it was focused with his eyes on the on the target as opposed to being on the defender. And I, I thought it was keeping two hands on the ball longer as he got closer to the rim. And I, I think he's really improved on that now. Is he where he needs to be? No, but I, I think he's improved. I think I think Dante Bassett has improved uh, his shooting, uh, his finishes around the rim. So. So with me, I tr- I try to improve on guys where they need the most strength and, and their biggest strengths. I know this is an all-consuming uh, job that you have, but when you do have some occasional free time or time with your family, what are some hobbies you enjoy outside of basketball? 
you know, all of my kids are, are active. They're, they're all playing basketball right now. Uh, my oldest is playing with the middle school at Rock, hmm. and my younger two are playing rec ball. So whenever, whenever I can watch them play either baseball or basketball, I'm doing it. And then hobbies, they could go to movies like every day of the week. So <laughs> I, I go watch, you know, cartoon movies with them. And that, that's pretty much my, my life hobbies, you know, basketball here, watching them play or at the movies with those guys. Uh, other than that is popping in on them playing Fortnite. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have, I don't, I don't do much. I love to play golf, but I just, I don't have a lot of time for it, but that's, that's probably one of the hobbies. One, I, I would say my hobby is playing golf, but I don't, I don't get to do it very much. Yeah, time is time is very precious. I'm curious, uh, what was the the last good movie that you went to with your family? Uh, Incredibles. We watched Incredibles. That was the last one. Yeah, the last one. Wreck It Ralph. Wreck It Ralph and uh, Incredibles. I was gonna guess your la- just based on uh, the timeline. I was gonna guess that your last movie was probably Wreck It Ralph. Wreck It Ralph <laughs> and Incredibles. Yeah. Uh, a final question for you. I know one of the things that assistants spend a lot of time doing is preparing those scouting reports. And uh, I believe you're responsible for TCU, which is coming up this weekend. How familiar are you with them from your time at Texas Tech? And what goes into your scouting process? Very familiar with those guys. Um, Jamie Dixon's done an unbelievable job uh, taking over that program obviously taking it to places it hadn't been in its third year. And then scouting for me, you know, it, it's different from coach to coach. I think here, you know, every, every place you go, the details are important. I think personnel, huge part of scouting, re- really knowing what guys do best for the for the opponent. And, and then offensively and defense, defensively the same. You know, we, we're, we're going to know the ins and outs of, of, of what they do really, really well offensively and, and how we want to attack them defensively and then vice versa. Uh, offensively for us, we're going to break down how we can attack them and, and, and score, uh, as easy as we can, uh, offensively as well. Um, you know, it's ongoing, going, it never stops. Uh, we, we scout right up until we tip it off. Uh, we're sitting around talking about TCU until really until the tip goes up. Very demanding. And I'm sure that uh, the time that we've spent here is time that you could have been scouting. So we will not take any more of it once you get back to it. But thank you so much for your time. And we're glad to have you a part of the Gator Nation. No problem. You're welcome. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Follow men's basketball on the road as they compete against TCU in the SEC Big 12 Challenge on Saturday at noon on ESPN2 and the Gator IMG Sports Network. Then, come back next Thursday as we'll have an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in the Lone Star State.